2 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. It reads, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness." You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of his service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It is good to be together on this Lord's Day. I want to thank each of you for being here. I want to echo Carrie in uh, welcoming you if you're a visitor, letting you know that we are thrilled and blessed to have you here with us today to worship God together. I'm excited to study a subject that I think is critical, and always always are, but one that I think can make or break our joy in this life and the life to come, and uh, can have a tremendous impact on our enjoyment of this life, and most importantly, in the life to come, and that's the subject of generosity. And I mentioned uh, last time we studied 2 Corinthians 8, and talked about this phrase in 2 Corinthians 8, where it talks about give proof of your love, as Paul is... Uh, raising funds for the needy saints in, in Jerusalem. And I said the genesis of these studies kind of came from a desire for me to evaluate my own generosity and giving personally, but also because I'm involved in church fundraising efforts, if you will, especially for Church of Christ India. And as I go to different places and give India presentations, I'm always trying to get better at that, do that maybe in a fresh way or different way uh, each time as I give those reports. And so always thinking, how can I be better at touching people's hearts and minds uh, to support generously a work that I believe in with all my heart? And I've seen what so little by our standards can do in spreading the gospel in the world. And so how do I touch people's hearts and minds? What do I say? What do I do? And how can I do that biblically? And really, there's a template for that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where Paul is basically doing a church fundraiser. And so I wanted to study that for, for that reason as well. And I'm excited to share some of the things that we learn uh, from those chapters, and things, again, when you look at the Bible and the emphasis on money, one out of six verses in the New Testament, half of Jesus' parables are about money. Think about how much you think about or are confronted with decisions or thinking related to money every day, how much you're thinking about money. And so when we think about how prevalent the warnings on money are, the love of money is the root of all evil, you can have that problem be flat broke, it's not money, it's the love of money. Because it represents, it's the root of all kinds of evils because it's desire minus God. What money 
can buy minus God. And all evil at its root, at its heart, is desire minus God. And so we're warned about money and this desire to be rich and about how we use our resources and money throughout Scripture. And we see how prevalent that is. I would argue that maybe we don't teach on it proportionately to how prevalent it is in Scripture for various reasons, various excuses why we don't want to talk about this. But I think it's so important. And I think that if we will implement the things that we learn about generosity, I think it will radically improve and transform your life. I'm not talking about the health and wealth perversions of that. That's not what I'm selling. But it can radically improve and transform your enjoyment of this life and most importantly, life to come. So I am thrilled to study these things with you for a little while this morning. And our study is taken in 2 Corinthians 9. This is the concept we want to explore. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. And again, this is a universal experience. This is a universal temptation and struggle, especially as Americans. You know, you don't have to raise your hand high. You can do the alligator uh, raise. But how many of you have ever in your life struggled with money in some way, right? Whether that's management of money, whether that's spending, saving, generosity, not being stingy, your attitude, various forms of covetousness and greed. How many of you have struggled with money? How many of you not raising your hand have struggled with lying? And so this is a universal problem, and having a proper relationship with money starts with understanding stewardship. The Bible has a lot to say about stewardship. We've studied that previously, taught on the parable of the steward or the talents and talked about stewardship a couple years ago. And so we could look at a multitude of verses on stewardship. I like, uh, you know, Deuteronomy 8, Psalm 50. God basically says, it's all mine anyway, right? God doesn't need your money. It's already His, okay? And so we've got to come into it with this attitude, okay, God, this is yours. What do you want me to do with it? You know, you think about in, including your children in different tasks around the house, and, you know, Kelsey doesn't need the kids to help her cook. I mean, she knows that if she does that going into it, it's going to be more time-consuming, and it's going to be more messy. But she loves them enough to give them the opportunity, the privilege of participating, of being involved, and that's what God's doing with us. He wants to bless us by including us, involving us. I think about Esther when Mordecai told her, you know, maybe you're in this position. Maybe God has blessed you and put you in this position for such a time as this. Step up. And if you don't step up, you and your family will be cursed for not because you didn't help. And you think so many times even where it says people are going to be cursed for not obeying God because they miss out on God's blessing. Curse, being cursed is the absence of God's blessing. God wants to bless us when we obey Him and we're generous in all these various ways, but when we exclude ourselves from the blessing, we're cursed. If you don't, somebody else will step up. Somebody else will do it. God's plan, God's purpose will be accomplished with or without your cooperation, but He's inviting you to be involved. Acts 20, verse 35, at the end of this speech to the elders of Ephesus, His parting words, uh, Paul to the elders at Ephesus says that I've shown you by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. What does that mean? It means you'll be more, you'll have more if you are a giver instead of a hoarder. And it seems very evident Paul is trying to motivate these elders to give because it'll be more blessed if you give. And yet, 
We're told, you know, that if you, if you give, if you love somebody, and you do that in part because of there's a reward, a blessing in doing that, Jesus put before us rewards and punishments as motivation frequently. We're told if you, do, if you love somebody because, you know, there'll be a reward in that in some way, or you'll be blessed because you serve them and help them, that that's not love because love doesn't seek its own. That's selfish. If that's completely true, though, Paul should have said forgetting the words Lord Jesus when he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. You see, biblical love and generosity includes others in the blessing we're seeking, in the joy we're seeking. It's not selfish. It isn't stepping on others to be happy. It isn't leaving others behind in our pursuit of selfish pleasure and joy. In giving, we're bringing others into our joy in Christ. Their joy increases our joy. They grow bigger together. And so he says, remember, if you're struggling to generously love someone... Call to mind what Jesus said, and that'll have a motivating effect on you. And what did Jesus say? He said, it'll be better if you love them. It'll be better for you if you give more. Remember that. Don't forget that. This text gives us a template, essentially an inspired template for how to give and how not to give. Verse 5, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity not as a grudging obligation. Give willingly. Paul doesn't command them to tithe because he wants them to give willingly, not under compulsion. To cultivate a heart, a mind, a spirit of generosity. He wants liberality, not limitation. And so again, this fundraising work is not about begging people to give against their will, but hearts and minds made ready by the Word of God and by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're to give willingly, we're to give bountifully, because the point is this, verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The root of bad giving is a heart that wants to hold back, the sparing heart, the one that wants to give sparingly. We're told God did not spare His Son, but He gave us richly all things that we needed. He didn't spare His Son, it means He didn't hold Him back from us. He didn't keep him to himself, he shared him. That's the heart of God. In contrast, giving bountifully is giving on the basis of blessing, on the foundational truth that we have a benevolent, generously gracious Father. Giving from a heart then that wants to share and give like God. That wants to be a river instead of a reservoir. And it begs the question, which one are you? What kind of heart do we have? And what makes the difference between a sparing heart and a bountiful heart? The bountiful and cheerful heart sees God as a giver, supplying seed, multiplying seed, making us sufficient for every good work. The sparing heart sees God as a taker who is draining and demanding and therefore sees giving that way. We hoard whatever seed He's given us, and that can be time, talent, treasure, whatever it is He's given us, because we're afraid, because of a lack of faith, that we won't have enough for ourselves. But the truth is, we know biblically and by experience, you can't outgive God. Trust God as a giver, or you will see Him and you will see giving as a draining and burdensome, And you'll give grudgingly and sparingly, if at all. Our relationship with God is the difference. How we see God, see a giver or a taker, that's the difference. That that makes all the difference. 
We've got to see that God is giving on both ends of our generosity. He's giving to enable us, to equip us, to be sufficient. He's providing seed for the sower, and He's giving afterwards to give us, to enrich us, to give more. To give, us an, to give an increased harvest of the righteousness from the seed that's been sown. Verse 9, as it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor, is righteous and dearest forever. This is quoting from Psalm 112. In the context, it's describing a man who deals generously and lends. This person distributes freely. He gives to the poor, his righteous and dearest forever. The generous scattering of seed to meet the needs of others is defined in the Bible as righteousness. And the harvest of righteousness then is what grows up as a result of that generosity of the scattering of seed. God will increase the harvest of your righteousness. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Same concept. Bountiful sowing is righteousness. Bountiful reaping then is an increased harvest of that righteousness. And what is harvested? Verse 11 through 14, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. The more you give, the more you'll be able to give more. And if it's more blessed to give than to receive, the more we give, the more we're going to harvest joy. More thanks to God, verse 11 and 13. God gets the glory. God gets the praise. God gets the thanks. That's what it's all about. So he says, well, I thought the giver gets the credit. Yes. That's the point. God's the giver. We're just the conduits. We're just the vessels. We get the joy. God gets the glory. The harvest of seeing God meet needs, our needs and the needs of others, verse 12. Brotherly love and affection among God's people. They long for you and pray for you. We all want to be longed for, needed, loved, hopefully not in self-serving ways or insecure ways. But we want to live a life that counts. We want to make a difference. And we should want that because of the surpassing grace of God in us. God gets the glory. So we want to sow bountifully so there's a bountiful harvest. In God's math, verse 6, the best way to add... And really, God's in the business of multiplying. He doesn't stop at addition. He multiplies. The best way to do that is to subtract. It's this paradox, this upside-down kingdom. But tragically, most are operating, including Christians, are operating on the exact opposite principle because 10 minus 1 is 9, but 10 minus 0 is 10. So if you want more, you've got to subtract less, right? Not in God's economy. That math leads... God out of the equation, giving 10, 20, 30 percent, 70, 80, 90 percent to live on with God is greater than 100 percent without God and His blessing. Put God and His promises back into the equation. And the Bible teaches, and we know by nature, the more seed you take out of your bag, the more potential for fruit, the greater the harvest. That's God's promise. He told Peter when Peter said, you know, we've left all to follow you. And he said, you will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. One fold was 100% return. A hundredfold was 10,000% return. How in the world can we believe the words of Jesus and not give generously? And the harvest depends upon two things, the amount given and the spirit by which it was given. The standard of measurement we use, Luke 6 and verse 38, Give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. This is marketplace imagery. You know, it could be buying and selling, spices, liquids. You could be kind of generous in how you devied that out, leave it kind of overflowing, not scrape off the top. Or you could cheat people 
in the standard of measurement. The question is, what kind of scoop am I using? Dump the truckload on me, Father, right? That's our prayer. Bless me. I want all the blessings you have for me, all you can give me. And God says, okay, well, hand me your standard of measurement. Hand me your measuring cup. And we give him a teaspoon. We want bucket-sized blessings, but we're making teaspoon-sized investments. God, we're told, though, he presses down. He shakes it so there's more room to fill. You know, you ever see like, a, I don't know, food packaging, maybe bags of chips. Sometimes there's a disclaimer that, that things settle in transit, so that's why the bag's half full and you paid six bucks for it. You know, you want to say, why don't you transit it and fill it full and then send it? That's what God does. He doesn't scrape off the top in the measuring cup, right? He leaves it overflowing. Put in your bosom. I think about when the boys are, we go outside sometimes and they hit baseballs or golf balls and we're gathering them up and there's a ton. And, and so we're putting them in pockets and I do the thing, you know, where you stretch your shirt out and you're walking like that. God equips us with bigger pockets. What if our home in heaven was built based on what we gave in this life? I'm not saying that's how it works. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we earn or we merit or we deserve anything, right? That's not, I'm just saying hypothetically, what if our home in heaven was built with the investments, with what we gave in this life? By our standard of measurement, would we be sleeping outside in a sleeping bag? We all want to live forever in the mansion in heaven, but we refuse to send the treasure on. So secure your future. That's what Jesus said, Matthew 6. Don't pursue treasure on earth that doesn't last, that, that rots and rusts and corrupts, but seek treasure in heaven. Jesus is not against good investments. He's against bad investments. Paul echoes this in 1 Timothy 6, to the rich, and we're going to see that's us. Don't be haughty. Don't think you're more because you have more. That's the temptation. Don't trust in uncertain riches. That's the temptation. That's why few find who are rich. Because we begin to trust and we begin to love and we begin to worship the gifts instead of the giver. To the rich, do good, be rich in what? Good works. To be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves, the good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And how do we do that? Jesus said, sell what you have, give alms, provide yourselves money bags, which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Give, expecting nothing in return, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Luke 16, one of the more challenging for many uh, parables of Jesus to understand, a lot of misconceptions, because it appears that maybe this, this steward who had wasted his master's stuff was being commended for being dishonest. That's not what Jesus is commending. That would be absurd. That would contradict the entire Bible and the truth Jesus embodies and is and taught. So what's the point here? This man, this bad steward, knew he was in trouble, and so he went out and he discounted the debts of people that owed money to his master so that down the line they would owe him a favor. Unbelievers go to great lengths to secure their earthly, carnal, temporal blessings in this life in very shrewd, ingenious ways. Jesus said, do that with your resources. Use what God's given you to secure your eternal future. Use money, use talent, use ta whatever it is for gospel enterprises so that those you helped, and I tell you make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, that's the stuff in this life, money, 
so that when it fails, and it will, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So that those you helped and blessed, many that maybe you knew, many you didn't even know, maybe in foreign places like India or Nigeria, wherever, will be there to welcome you. Imagine people coming up to you and saying, thank you for helping me get here. I'm your friend forever. We leave legacies. We expand our influence. We have a greater impact, not by what we get and hold on to and hoard, but what we give. The only thing you take with you that you send ahead is what you gave in service to God and service to other people. So he says, when I have more, I'll give. I'll do my part. When I get ahead, when I get more money, when I get the promotion, when all my debts and bills are paid, when I'm a certain age, then I'll start giving like I should. No, you won't. So you don't know me. Don't judge me. But Jesus does. Verse 10, Jesus says, no, you won't. More money will just make you a bigger whatever you already were. And if you were a narcissist before, you'll be a bigger narcissist now. And your narcissism will have better funding. And so give willingly, bountifully, cheerfully. There's one imperative in this entire text. Verse 7, give cheerfully from your heart. That's the imperative. That's the command in this text. Everything else is motivation to help us give cheerfully. If God values cheerful generosity so much that He sent His Son, didn't spare His Son to create that within us, then we can be sure and confident that God will work mightily in His sovereignty, in His power, in His omnipotence for those whose behavior and heart He values and loves and esteems so highly. And so when we're generous, we are tapping into an infinite source of divine power. God loves you in a special way when you give like this. God loves a cheerful giver. Is that not incentive enough to be generous? That's the best return of all. We think about all the ways that we're blessed by being generous. This is the best blessing of all. God loves you. And if we understand and appreciate God loves a cheerful giver, how in the world can we not give willingly, bountifully, and cheerfully? So again, this text gives us the template for how to give and how not to give. Not as a grudging obligation, not sparingly, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but willingly, bountifully, cheerfully. And we're told also to give proportionately and purposefully. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are to do as well. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections need to be made when I come. Give as you've been prospered, I want to tell you, we've been prospered greatly. Think about how rich you are. The average annual household income globally is $3,000 a year. If you're single, now I know it's a little bit more than this if you have kids and you're married, but if you're single and you make $20,000 a year, which we would consider below the poverty line in our society, you're the top 10% richest people in the world. If you're single and you make $60,000 or more a year, you're in the top 1% of the richest people on earth. Or is anybody surprised that a large percentage of the top 1% live in the United States of America? You know, I've thought about this. I go to India and I see a third world country and I see hardworking, intelligent people who are impoverished financially, spiritually, many of them as well. And I thought, you know, do I have more 
financially because I'm smarter than everybody else, because I'm harder working than everybody. And I certainly, there's stewardship concepts, there's free will, there's work ethic. Yes, that can have an impact. Biblical principles. But am I, like, I don't know how many times wealthier than them because I'm just smarter and better than them and harder working than them? Or is it because I was born in the United States of America? You know, Luke 12, the, the rich fool there, I, 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 I'll build, and it was all about what he was building, what he could do. And you know what Luke 12 says? The ground of a certain rich man yielded. The ground yielded. And we live in a land that yields. Give as you've been prosper, I think, lends itself to maybe determining, setting a percentage that you've chosen to give. As you've been prospered, good times and bad times, you're committed to that. And it goes up and down based on if has you been prospered. If many are giving as they've been prospered, I think maybe we think God's starving us. And yet we have big houses, big diamonds, big pantries, big trucks, etc. Haggai 1, as the, the Jews returned back to Jerusalem, they started, some of the Jews did, they started to rebuild the temple, but they didn't finish the project. And God rebukes them. The prophet rebukes them. You know, they're saying, ah, time's not right. So we say, right, when we get ahead, when I win the lottery, whatever, time's not right. And he said, is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while the house of God lies in ruins? Consider your ways. He said, you have all this stuff coming in, all this prosperity, and yet you're putting it into a bag with holes. You can't ever get ahead. All this stuff you're getting, I'm blowing it away. Consider your ways. You looked for much, but it came to little. You brought it home and I blew it away because of my house that lies in ruins. Every one of you runs and concerns himself with his own house. You know, the problem is not a six-figure income that is so common in our land that yields. Increasingly common in our land that yields. You know, that's not the, pro- the problem is thinking that I have to have a six-figure lifestyle with all the status symbols to match. Give as you've been prospered. Give as you've purposed in your heart. You know, that's the same concept in Daniel 1 where Daniel purposed in his heart. He would not defile himself. A young man away from home in this pagan environment said, I will not defile myself. That's my decision before I'm in the moment of compromise. I'm committed. That's what we've got to do with our giving. And that planned giving aids the cheerful giving because you're less likely to give bountifully and cheerfully if you just get caught off guard and the plates are passed and you haven't thought, and now I'm going to get the $5 bill. You're asked to give to something. It's hard to give joyfully and generously when we're caught off guard. We've got to do that purposely, intentionally. What percentage have I decided to give back to God, to the advancement of His kingdom, the church, those in need, before it even gets to me, before it even comes to me? It's a question we've got to be asking. And, you know, I thought about this, and I thought, well, how much did they give under the law of Moses? And that's kind of hard to nail down, to be honest. There are various tithes. There was a Levitical tithe, 10% that went to uh, the tribe of Levi, who didn't have a land, right? Didn't, weren't given land, so they were supported with this tithe. And a small percentage of that tithe went to the priest and their work that they did. There was the festival tithes to get ready for national celebrations and festivals, like the Passover. There was the poor tithe every third year. This was also often, you know, these tithes were 10% of your, your produce and your livestock, 10%. And this was every third year. So this came out to 23.3% to support the theocratic nation of Israel. 
It's kind of similar to our tax system, right? But on top of this, there was the, the temple tax. There was the don't harvest the corner of your fields or what you drop during harvest. There were free will offerings beyond the compulsory offerings that they could give. So a faithful Jew could have been given anywhere probably from 23 to 50%. But you know the best way to motivate New Testament Christians living under the New Covenant is not examples of compulsory giving, although they could give free will offerings as well. But I think it's to do what Paul did and give inspiring examples of people who gave willingly, bountifully, like the Macedonians that he used to prod those in Corinth who gave out of extreme poverty and affliction with great joy, went above and beyond, begged us to give because they gave themselves first to the Lord. And when you give yourself first to the Lord, your heart, everything else follows, including your pocketbook, including your schedule, your budget. Or the Christians in Acts 2 in Jerusalem, it's a pivotal moment that were so generous. Uh, the, the widow who cast in two mites, it was everything she had, 100%. Each one of you, no matter if you're rich, each one of you are to give. Zacchaeus gave 50%. Barnabas, Dorcas, etc. Early Christians we read about. This writer, this early Christian apologist, he talks about slaves who were able to give in spite of their poverty because they planned to give. They purposed to give. And if there is any that is a slave or a poor man, they fast two or three days And what they were going to set before themselves, they send to them, speaking of Christians in prison, considering themselves to give good cheer, even as they were called to give good cheer. What's our excuse? I mean, how does that make you feel? They didn't have anything to give, so you know what they did to give to help those who were in prison so they had food to eat? You know what they did? They fasted two or three days. They fasted. That'd be really hard for us. I hope it convicts you and me. I hope it inspires us. And the supreme example we're given is Jesus Christ, the heart of this text, this passage, the gospel in this, 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. We have the standard of Christ for new covenant giving. And do you think the Jews who converted to Christianity thought, Good news! (laughs) We have better promises, better blessings than those who didn't have Christ under the old covenant. Therefore, I'm content. We are content to not be generous. To say that Christians aren't expected to tithe under the new covenant, we're not commanded to tithe under the new covenant, is not the same thing as saying Christians are not expected to be generous. And so if our motivation in laying aside tithing and saying, well, we don't have to tithe, is so we can be content with being less generous, our motivation is wrong. If we're laying aside to sear our conscience and appease our conscience to do less, our motivation is wrong. It's not New Testament. You have not so learned Christ. Don't set it aside to be less generous for greater love of money. Don't set it aside for greater limitations. Only set it aside for greater liberality. Proverbs 3, 9, give your first fruits. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. You know why that's hard? Because it takes more faith to give what comes out first. First fruit. First produce, first animal. It takes a lot more faith to give what's first than it after you're kind of all taken care of and you get down to nine or ten. God gave us firstborn. God gave us best. What you do with your first fruit shows who you're trusting the rest with, where your faith is. It'll provide who your God is. And so when you get paid, when you get the bonus, the first thing we should think about is not bills, 
debts, retirement, budget, vacation. But how much am I giving to God and His kingdom? The top of your budget. Put the kingdom first. Put God first. Your first fruit. Pay God first. And I think that arguably lends itself to paying off the gross and not the net. Well, I says it the gross or the net. I think maybe we should think about paying God first before the government. For everybody else is paid. Not leftovers, not scraps. Malachi 1, that's what they were doing. Their sacrifices, their giving was literally lame. Go back to Haggai 1. How much do we spend on our houses? Department of Labor survey from a couple years ago, the average American spends a third of their income on their house. And survey after survey for decades has shown consistently that the average Christian gives 2 to 4%. 2 to 4%. Not the same thing they were rebuked for. And I have to point out that most spend more on entertainment and alcohol than they do on the kingdom of God. Anybody surprised that Christian pet owners, many of them spend more on their dog than they do on their God? And as Christians living in the most prosperous land that yields in the history of the world, American Christianism is going to stand before God, if not really such a thing, but you know my point, and answer for was two, and find out was 2 or 4% enough. I'm not sure anybody in the Bible was ever commended as liberal and generous givers who gave anything less than 10%. You know, people who make $75,000 or more, only I saw a survey, only 1% of people who make over $75,000 give at least 10%. And surveys show time and time again that the more you make, the less you give by percentage. Think about that. If we don't set a percentage, if we don't just do the simple math already, here's the simple equation what happens is when you make maybe $30,000, $3,000 maybe doesn't seem like a ton, but when you start making $100,000, $150,000, 10 or more, $15,000, $20,000, that starts seeming like a whole lot. And the evidence that many within Christians have been deceived by American consumerism and materialism and health and wealth prosperity gospels is how much we have and how little we give. You know the abundance, the gifts, the excess is to prove who our God is? That the gifts are not our God, the giver is. It's a test. That's what it is. It's a test. And it's one that I fear we're failing miserably at. So given faith, notice the alls. All grace, all sufficiency, all things, all times, for all good works, every way. All we need in all things at all times for every good work. This is a proverbial truth. Proverbs 3, we saw, give your first fruits. Why? So that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Proverbial truth, Proverbs 11, 24, one gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. Proverbs 28, 27, he who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. We're taught this idea. In general, proverbially, if you're a good steward, whatever it is God's giving, he'll give you more of it if you're using it to bring glory to him. In general. But this text has been so abused and misused by those teaching health and wealth, prosperity gospels, give so bountifully, because if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. But if you give and sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully in the idea so you can consume it on your lust. 
give us your money and you'll get a hundredfold return on that, thousands of dollars back from that as we fly around, use your money to fly around in private jets to our private islands. We think, you know, they're taking advantage of people. We're appalled by that, but really? Are they victims when they, are, they want exactly what those people are selling? And it's not God. It's desire minus God. We cringe and we're disgusted by perverted, corrupted versions of prosperity gospel, and rightly so. There should be a visceral reaction. But if we're not careful, then we begin to swing. It's what we do. We swing to the opposite extreme. We deny all these truths about stewardship, about God providing so we can be more generous. The promise is not to make generous Christians financially wealthy, but to make generous Christians capable, equipped to be even more generous. He will enrich you to do that. Whatever it is, time, talent, treasure. He makes all grace abound to you at all times. Everything you need, your needs, not your greeds, not your lust. The premise is give because God loves a cheerful giver. And the promise is if you give cheerfully, God will enrich, equip, and provide for you to give more. God will give you everything you need in every area of your life, throughout your life, because we serve an always God in the mountains and the valleys. Times of abundance, Times of want, Philippians 4. In the good times and bad times, God's there providing blessing, enriching us through it all. All sufficiency for all good works, because again, you cannot give God. You will not be more generous and gracious than God. That's the promise. God won't allow you to give so much you can't give anymore. This truth is stated three times in verse 8, 10, and 11. He'll make you sufficient for every good work He expects of you. And, you know, we often need to be reminded that God will make us sufficient for every good work. God will provide. God will equip us. All sufficiency in all things at all times. We also need to be reminded and remember often that with that promise, opportunities, gifts, stewardship, ability is a response to the ability, is an account to the ability. God enriches us not so we can build bigger barns and status symbols, but so we can abound in every good work. The excess is to provide for the poor, for the lost, for missions, for ministries. 2 Corinthians 8, it's only fair. Your abundance supplies their lack. The excess, the abundance is to supply what's lacking. Spread the gospel. Take care of those who are in need. Not for selfish, prideful, personal conception. We are to be conduits, not cul-de-sacs. And we, the vessels, we, the conduits, don't have to be lined in gold when copper will do just fine. An increase of income is not God's stamp of approval in a life of self-centered narcissism, narcissistic excess and luxury, but a commission, a call to bountiful, joyfully generous love and ministry. God provides all the seed that we need to multiply what we give. I think about the boy that brought the loaves and the fishes and the miracle of multiplication. That's what that seed works. The miracle of multiplication. Giving is a seed I sow in faith. Faith that God will use for His glory, for His purposes, that He will multiply what I give Him. Time, talent, treasure. And the result of all of this, of Christian generosity, is that needs are met, the gospel is preached, the kingdom's advanced, Thanks and praise and glory is going up to God. Cheerful generosity leads people more than we know this side of heaven to praise God. 
to thank God. And that's what life is all about. That's what everything was created for. How is that not incentive enough? My giving, my generosity will result in the glory of God. To show It doesn't show God as supreme and valuable and important when I give sparingly and grudgingly. That does not honor God and His graciousness towards me. It doesn't glorify His beauty. And so I want to issue as we close a Malachi 3 challenge that God there, they're rebuked. He says, will man rob God? And they say, we haven't robbed God. That's the epitome of you know what. We haven't robbed God. How, how have we robbed? He said, you've robbed me. How have we robbed you? And they're probably thinking, we haven't chopped off gold from the temple. We haven't robbed the treasury. And he said, you've robbed me in tithes and offerings. And again, we don't want to ignore the context on the law of Moses and the command to tithe. We don't want to stretch this too far. This is a favorite, wealth and health, prosperity. We don't want to we ignore the context, but I think there are principles and there are truths taught for our learning in the Old Covenant even. We're told for our learning. And he says, you know, bring the tithes in the storehouse. There may be found food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. Try me. One of the only times in the whole Bible God says, test me. Prove me if what I'm saying is true. I'll prove it to you. Take the God there. I'll open heaven so much that there won't be room for you to bring the food into the storehouse to take care of the poor. I will stop the destroyer. I will cause your vines to not miscarry. He's pleading with a money-loving people. Let me bless you. Let me use you. Does that sound like a taker? Cosmic killjoy, a cursor, or a giver? Let's not make the house of God that's meant to be a house of generosity, a den of thieves and misers. And remember, there's always a reckoning for stewards. That's the point. There's always a reckoning for how we use, we'll be called to account, account to our ability. How we responded to our ability. How we used what the master entrusted to us. Use God's resources for his purpose, to promote his interest, his cause, his kingdom, his glory, his beauty. And as we offer an invitation, we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, remembering the greatest gift and giver of all, Remember that we would have nothing. We'd be absolutely nothing. We'd have absolutely nothing to give if God spared His Son. If He didn't become poor so we could be rich through His poverty, and I want to tell you we have access to those riches this morning. Be spiritually, spiritually, spiritually healthy and wealthy this morning through the precious and priceless blood of His Son. Be born again. You know, I think about Exodus 13, where it talked about the dedication, how they're to dedicate the firstborn. Dedicate the firstborn. And think about how they would offer the firstborn animals and how that was going to go on for a long time. And he said, they said, because your children are going to ask why you do this all the time. Why you keep doing this? Why you keep doing this? And it's an opportunity for dad to say, because there was a time when we didn't have land, we didn't have animals, we were slaves in Egypt. But God, with the mighty hand, graciously and generously set us free. Gave us everything that you see. Redeemed us. Therefore, we give. What do we say when our children ask us, why do we do this? Every Sunday, on the first day of every week, let every one of you do this. Why? What do we say? Because God gave with a mighty hand.
He graciously and generously set us free from the bondage of sin and made us rich through his poverty. Therefore, we willingly and bountifully and joyfully give back. If you're needing something this morning, if you have a spiritual need, the giver invites you to come as we stand and sing.